Today, the beginning, middle, and end of how we live in a world caught in the middle. Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. We're doing a psalm today, back to a, a scripture show. We, I, I don't know if you've figured this out or not. Uh, if you listen often enough on the episodes, we try to do a scripture show every third or fourth uh, episode. And it, it's for my sake, because that's the, the core of who I am. I, I love to talk about scripture, and I loved this one. It took a good while for me to grasp what was going on in it. Uh, but it was revelatory to me. It is, again, a psalm of David. In fact, I believe this is the last in the first book of the Psalms, and so that first book of the Psalms is just dominated by Psalms of David, and it is to the chief musician. This is the superscript that's written into the psalm at the beginning, and this one uh, has a lot, uh, a lot to do with living in between, uh, living in a world where we believe, we know, we hope, we anticipate all of those things that go with faith, with the idea that we put together with faith. But then we don't have. It's not in our grasp right now. And there's, it's not even an already not yet thing as for for people who use that theological language. It is a faith that we have now and a hope that we have now, even an assurance that we have now, but not a reality that we have now, that is contrasted strongly in the psalm, especially at the beginning. And you'll see why I'm saying it as we're reading through it in a moment. But then that converts toward the end of the psalm, uh, in the last two-thirds of the psalm, and, and it never goes away. It's always present, but it converts in its priority to how we're supposed to live because of that. First, it's just recognizing that that's the case. So let's take this a a few verses at a time, starting uh, in Psalm 41, the first three verses. Blessed is he who considers the poor. And this is an interesting beginning, particularly because it, it doesn't persist. We're not going to talk about the poor through the rest of the psalm, and it's almost distracting why that would be. So blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive. You know, unusually, I'm reading from the New King James today, and so I'm gonna, I'll go back and I'll have to restate some of these things, not because it's New King James, but because they're just, there are a couple of really strange options on how to translate a couple of these phrases not in the content of them, but in the tense, in the nature or the mood of how they're being given. I'll I'll show you in a moment. So first, blessed is he who considers the poor, the Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. 
But then it goes on to say, so the Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he will be blessed on the earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. Now we're to the enemies, not the poor. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sickbed. Those three verses comprise the first sort of stanza of this psalm. And in each of the first two verses, uh, the last half can be taken more as uh, it's a cohortative or adjustive, it's a, it's a command, it's an imperative, but it's not in the second person, the normal, normally the way that we would take them. And so in verse 1, when I said, blessed is he who considers the poor, and then there's like a descriptive way of reading the second half, the Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. So you anticipate it with this declarative statement. The second half of that verse could actually be taken and almost inevitably seems to be implied this way, that, that we should take it this way. Not the Lord will deliver him in time of trouble, but may the Lord deliver him in time of trouble, or let the Lord deliver him in time of trouble. And that's what I mean by a adjustive or, or a cohortative. A cohortative is when it's in the first person and we're saying, may we go, you know, let us go now, that kind of thing. Uh, and adjustive is, is when you say it in the third person. You cause him to do that. But it's not really causing him. It's, it's an imperative. Make him do this. So may the Lord deliver him. And you can see the, uh, the, the, the thing that I was talking about, the contrast between what we anticipate, the faith that we have, and then the thing that hasn't been realized yet. And so we're praying it. So blessed is he who considers the poor. And you may say to yourself, oh, well, that's... I mean, why would you say that's the faith that we have or the hope that we have? That is the expression of faith, the consummate expression of our commitment to God's will instead of our own will of pursuing something that's more eternal or more valuable than simply the world in front of us is how we consider the poor or the outcast. And so blessed is he who considers the poor, and this will be repeated for us in a moment in a different way, but blessed as you considers the poor is us living faithfully in the world. And then the, the, the cry that has to follow that is, what makes this worthwhile? Well, may the Lord deliver that one who cared about the poor, who did what he was commanded to do in his time of trouble. In the second verse, it moves over to this expression of our faith. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive. And then it becomes a prayer again. Instead of, and he will be blessed on the earth, and you will not deliver him to the will of his enemies, it becomes, may he be blessed. Let him not be delivered to the will of his enemies. And, and that does, again, seem to communicate the nature of this psalm, uh, which is between the faith that we have, the Lord will preserve him, and then may it be so, that we still pray for the way it will happen. And then in the third verse, he, he comes down to say, this, this will be the case. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. This is recognizing that we have that need. He's not just caring for the poor. He doesn't just have faith that God will do things. He's actually suffering. And so in this sorrowing, suffering, infirmed state of illness, the Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sickbed. There is the declaration that it will be so. so. So let's back up briefly and just say why I'm saying blessed is he who considers the poor 
is the ideal statement that we have faith, that this, that the psalmist, in this case, the Messiah, obviously, actually does live faithfully. And having faith and living faithfully, remember, are the same thing. They're not, they're not separable. Uh, in the Old or the New Testament, by the way, even though conceptually we can separate them, we can say, well, I have faith in my mind, but I'm having a hard time living it out. That's part of the reality of living in the in-between state that we're in. But what is not tolerable is saying, yes, I have faith, but no, it doesn't affect the way I live. That's not okay. That's not really having faith because faith produces faithfulness and, and inherently, not, not as some kind of whimsical relationship or coincidental relationship. And so taking blessed is he who considers the poor as an expression of faith is pretty straightforward because the passage I've appealed to over and over again and always will the one that Jesus goes to when they say, what is the great commandment is Leviticus 19. And in the language of Leviticus 19, I'll, I'll take out three little sections so we can tie it all together. But reading the whole chapter makes this point. In, in the first verse, it is, you shall be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. This is us identifying with him. In verse 9, it goes on to say, this is in Leviticus 19, when you reap the harvest of your land, you remember this command, it's about gleaning, allowing the poor to glean in the fields. When you reap the harvest of your land, you will not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor will you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger." I am the Lord your God. And that reiteration of I am the Lord your God is pointing back to the beginning statement. You shall be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. I am your God. So you will treat the poor this way. And then he goes on in verse 17 to extend that to the others that are in our lives. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. I'll come back to why I was reading that in a moment. I mean, not just a moment, but at the end of this psalm. Don't bear a grudge. Don't, don't execute vengeance on your own people. You shall instead love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. He repeats it. It's based in something about his nature as the Lord. And it's not super complicated. It's based in that because that's how he treated us. And by the time he gets to the end of the chapter, he says it outright. When he tells us how to treat the strangers who come to live among us, we shall treat you, you will love the stranger as one who was born among you. You regard them in the same way you regard your neighbor. You love them as yourself. Why? Because you were strangers in the land of Egypt, and I cared for you when you were strangers. I am the Lord your God, he goes on to say. So because the Lord cares for those who don't have power in his presence, we're supposed to care for those who don't have power in our presence, and that's the expression of the holiness of God, that's the expression of what holiness means, that we belong to him, that we act like him, that we follow him. So in following the Lord, we love our neighbor. So that's why this, this opening statement, blessed is he who considers the poor, is equivalent to saying blessed is he who is holy. 
Blessed is he who belongs to Yahweh, because Yahweh will deliver him in time of trouble. This is what uh, is carried down into the New Testament in Jesus repeating that commandment. What's the great commandment? He says it outright. Or James repeating it to the church after the resurrection. This is, a, and remember the language that he uses, that you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You remember the passage, James chapter two, my brothers show no partiality, that is choosing the rich over the poor. And it goes both directions. Don't choose the poor over the rich. Love people equally. Care about people equally. The appeal to care for the poor comes more deliberately and more overtly because they don't have someone already caring for them. That's the point, that those who have power exercise it immediately. They find themselves in need. They spend their money. They meet the need. But those who have no power need someone to take up their cause. And so we're constantly drawn to care for the poor, not because the poor are greater or better or more morally worthy than the wealthy, but because they don't have power. And we do. And so we can share that power with them. So anyway, he says, my brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man who's rich, a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and at the same time, a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, oh, you sit here in a good place, which is exactly what happens so often. While you say to the poor man, oh, stand over there or uh, here, sit down under my feet. Have you, and we'll talk about the feet in a minute, this is important. Have you not then made distinctions become partial among yourselves and become judges with thoughts that are not justifiable, evil. Listen, my beloved brothers, God, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? So that rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom is where we're trying to go. And so he says those who are poor in the world are the ones that Jesus has esteemed that way, which he has promised to those who love him. That is heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him but you dishonor the poor. Aren't the rich ones the ones who are oppressing you and dragging you into court? Aren't they the ones who are blaspheming Jesus' name, the honorable name by which you're called? Instead, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, this great commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So, I mean, the, the statements here make it really obvious when you put it all together in those first three verses of Psalm 41 that we are, that things are not yet what they should be and what they will be with us. And that, and that, that our ability to live in that world first comes in our recognition of whom, to, to whom we belong. That is that we belong to the Lord. And so the statement, blessed is he who considers the poor, is not, well, if you do good deeds, God will do good things for you. It's much more than that. It is if you belong to Yahweh and if in his holiness you choose to live in a world that doesn't demonstrate that holiness, you choose to be his children in this world, as the Sermon on the Mount puts it, we'll, we'll read later. If you choose that, if you recognize that you belong to him, then you have the opening of your faith. That's where faith begins. And that's what I said at, when we were opening the discussion today. I said, 
you know, where the beginning, middle, and end of how we live in a world that's caught in the middle. You hear now what I'm talking about. The beginning of faith is belonging, holiness, that we belong to Yahweh, and he's the one who governs what we do. So we follow a God who cares about those who have nothing to offer him. So that's what we're supposed to be like, people who are willing to care about those who have nothing to offer us. There's a beginning. We belong to holiness, to God. Okay, second step is how we're supposed to continue. How do, we, how do we lead on from there? What happens? Okay, so starting in verse four, it goes like this, and we'll go down through verse nine. I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. You can hear the change in voice, the language, everything changes, so you can tell. This is the second stanza of the psalm, so to speak. So I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil of me. When will he die and his name perish? That's a weird turn, isn't it? Listen again, verse 4. I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul. I have sinned against you. Have mercy. Now listen, verse 5. My enemies speak evil of me. They say, the enemies, when will he die and his name perish? And if he comes to see me, this is back to David saying it, the, the Messiah, the messianic figure. And if he comes to see me, my enemy comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. His heart sins. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. Do you remember verse 4? Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies, they speak evil of me. And if he comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, then he brags about his iniquity. Verse 7, all who hate me whisper together against me. Against me, they devise my hurt. And, 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 and it's not David being petty. They are doing this to him. He does have enemies. And to bring it forward more clearly to say how significant this is, that it's not petty or trivial, this is what they do to Jesus. When, when Jesus lives out the messianic truth for us in the reality of the Messiah redeeming us, those who hate him whisper together against him. They are planning and plotting together, devising his hurt. That's in verse 7 of Psalm 41. They say in verse 8, oh, he has an evil disease. It clings to him. And now that he's gone to his sickbed, he'll die there, and he will never rise again. You hear, I mean, this is the plotting of Jesus' people against him, his enemies against him. And David is saying, this is what they say every time I decline. They say, oh, no, surely he'll die this time, and we won't have to deal with him anymore. Worse than those terrible enemies are the people I thought were my friends betraying me. So in verse 9, even my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Lifted up his heel against me. Jesus quotes that passage, right? You, you're, you're aware of this. He quotes the passage. He quotes it in John 13. Do you know the context in which Jesus quotes that? It's such a great context I had to ask that way. It's, let, let me just read it to you. John 13. I'll, I'll start in verse 14. If I then, 
I'm going to read the quote to you again, because I want you to experience this while you're hearing Jesus say it to the disciples. The quote in Psalm 41, verse 9, the verse we're looking at, in a passage that began with the words, Lord, be merciful to me, heal my soul, because I have sinned against you. In a passage that began with us being God's enemy, it ends by him saying, after, you know, judge my enemies. My enemies are against me. My enemies are fighting against me. My enemies are heaping up iniquity. Even my own familiar friend whom I trusted, what does he do? The one who ate my bread, what does he do? He lifted up his heel, his foot, his heel against me. In John 13, Jesus is about to quote this passage just after he has done what we celebrate on Monday, Thursday, right? And in verse 14 of John 13, he says this, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He knows what he's about to say. He's gone around the room and washed the disciples' feet. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Uh, He's saying to them, so you be like this. Be the person who bows down behind the ones that you're serving and washes their feet. You expose yourself to the sole of this person's foot. Humble yourself before them. Become their servant. However, so blessed are you if you do these things that I've commanded you. you. You've seen what I've done. You do it. But I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen. This isn't him saying, oh, but I'm not going to serve everyone. This is him saying, but I know some of you are not going to do this. In fact, one of you is not going to do this. I know who I've chosen, and I know who is not chosen. I am not speaking of all of you because I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread, he sat at the table and ate his bread. After Jesus, Jesus goes around behind him, washes his feet. And then Jesus says, I know whose feet I'm washing. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. You know, there's there's a lot more weight in that than him saying, oh, there's this coincidental fulfillment of some random statement in Psalm 41 that some, some friend is going to betray him. Oh, a friend betrayed him. Well, it must be the Messiah. It's not just that. It's not looking for tokens that prove he's the Messiah. It's him saying to his disciples, this is what it means to be like me. It means to serve people by raising their foot and washing it, knowing that they're going to bring it down on your head, knowing that they're going to turn around and hurt you. And when that happens, when you see it happen to me, when it happens to you, you don't say, where is God now? You say, I belong to a God who did this first. I I belong to a God who served Israel when they were small, when they were rebellious, when they didn't care. I, I belong to a God who knelt down behind me and washed my feet right before I denied him three times. I belong to a God who knelt down and washed the feet of the man who was about to betray him into the hands of those who crucified him. So now that I'm serving people, 
who are walking over me, who are trampling over me, I remember he is the Messiah and I'm his. This is what faith has to have to endure in a world that doesn't demonstrate all the blessings of God on us every day. To live in a world that's in between, to live in a world that has not yet arrived at what it ought to be, our faith has to know who we are. Remember the opening statement in this is, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Faith requires that we know how little we have to bring to the table, that we are coming as supplicants first. We have nothing to offer. We have sinned against God. We were his enemies. And he knelt down below us and served us. We know who we are and remember whose we are. Then it changes how we respond. So I'm not, you know, if I know whose I belong to, whose I am, and then I remember how he was to me, then I'm not surprised to have enemies because I used to be God's enemy. The nature of the world that we live in, a fallen world, is selfish ambition. You can like or not like competition, but competition governs the world. I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying that's the way the world is. This is how we live. Selfish ambition is the nature of the fallen world, that people will step on others in order to raise themselves up. That's what we see all the time. We follow a Messiah who put himself under the feet of those who would crush him. And and I mean, in the most literal sense, kneels down to wash the heel that would be raised against him shortly after that. Okay, so we've got the first two parts of the psalm down. The third part of the psalm starts in verse 10. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that I may, and then this, repay them. This sounds pretty harsh. It is harsh, and it does mean that. But, oh, it means so much more than that. This is such a great, such a great verse. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that I may and we'll come to, back to the word repay. You, you know the Hebrew word for repay. It's weird. It's weird that this Hebrew word, this is the nature of Hebrew words is you'll have these roots that are, you know, like three letters, and then you have these stems that give them so many different meanings, intensifying them or making them passive or, or, or just making them indicative or whatever. And, and, that's, and that's what happens with this verb. The way it's given makes it legitimate to translate it the way it's translated. I mean, it's correct that I may repay him, them. But, but again, when you recognize the word, you know it has a range of meanings that then comes into the New Testament to be fulfilled in a way you wouldn't even imagine. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me, he starts in verse 10, and raise me up so that I can repay them, the enemies. By this I know, and listen to the rest of this, though, By this, I know that you are well-pleased with me because my enemy does not triumph over me. Not because of what I repay, because the enemy does not triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and you set me before your face forever. This is a meaningful prayer for the Messiah. If we just try to convert this to a prayer for ourselves, we're up a creek. Our integrity would never be enough, but the Messiah's is. 
And this is the point that we're in him, and so we're blessed in him. So we can also pray this prayer then, and we can live our lives in a way that makes the prayer meaningful for how we're living, even though it would never be worthy. As for you, as for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever. This is what we anticipate coming when it finally arrives. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. It, so, so let me take it back to that passage in James that we were reading. Remember the one that began with, don't show any partiality among yourselves. Instead, fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures. Don't judge the poor differently than you, you, than you judge the wealthy man who walks into your congregation. If you do, you are being partial. You're showing partiality, and you're not living up to the great commandment, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Remember that in James 2, one, the, the first nine or ten verses of James 2. Pick it up in verse 12, and you know what it says? So speak, so this is the way we should be, so speak like this, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And there's this thing in the law of liberty that we were already introduced to this law that persists so that instead of being pharisaical or legalistic, you know, looking briefly into the law and saying, oh, yeah, I'll follow that rule and that rule, and then turning away from the mirror of the law, which actually shows us what's wrong with us constantly, instead of that, we just turn away from it and say, oh, yeah, I fulfilled the law, I'm done. Instead of that, we're supposed to fulfill the perfect law, which makes us complete. That's, this is what he's coming back to now. The law of liberty, if, if we're judged under that law, the law of liberty, what is it? Judgment is without mercy to those who show no mercy. Judgment comes down to mercy. In us, in everything, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. That's the test. That's it. Mercy. Mercy. I'm, quote, I'm, I'm reading the passage. I'm not, I'm not dialoguing on it. This is the statement. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So this is, this is a, it's an odd thing that we started the psalm with how we treat the poor and then immediately go down to dealing with our enemies, right? That would be odd until you recognize that mercy is what we're demonstrating to both in our commission to be like God, to be like our Father, to be the children of our Father who's in heaven. And why the poor and the enemy so easily interchanged? Because they're in the same category. The poor can do us no good. Enemies do us harm. In both cases, whether they're actively doing us harm or passively doing us no good, we're not supposed to simply see them as people who are of, of, of no value to us or of, of negative value to us. That's not how we're supposed to see them because that's not how God saw us. So th this is the point in Matthew 5, in, that, in the Sermon on the Mount that I was mentioning a moment ago, in that section that begins in verse 38. You know, you've heard, because it, and this is not a coincidence. The enemy and the poor being put together for the same thing, that we demonstrate to both the same thing, the holiness of God, meaning mercy. This is what he says. So in, in Matthew 5, we're going to have the enemy and we're going to have the poor. 
And this is the measure of whether we're acting like the children of God. So in verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone sues you to take your tunic, these are the, these are the enemies. They're slapping you. They're suing you. Then let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go a mile, and you've heard this described in the imperial Roman culture, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. This is the beggar, the poor. Give. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You see how the poor were folded into that category to say they, they need the same thing. And so we're in the same way that it seems so obvious to us that we look at the poor and we say, well, obviously, if I'm, if I'm going to be like my Father in heaven, of course I'm going to care about the disenfranchised, the poor, those who can't do me any good but are not doing me any harm. But he says that's what it means to respond to your enemies that way as well. Because I, I didn't go back and, and tell you what that word is to repay. But, but you, O oh Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up so that I may repay them. You know what the word is for that? Shalom. And it's in a PL form, this intensifying form that gives a lot of range to the word. And it leaves wide open. I'm going to perfect them. And the perfecting them might be in judgment. I'm going to repay them. I'm going to have vengeance on them. And so I'm going to perfect them. So it's a perfect translation. But the word is wide open so that when we come to the New Testament, we understand that I'm going to turn to them the other cheek, that I am going to demonstrate perfectly what God did for me when I was his enemy and I begged him for mercy and he had it. And then I turn around and I see my enemy and I say, oh, man, could I perfect for them what God perfected for me? May we be like our Father in heaven. That's who we follow. We follow a God of mercy. So our lives will tell us that we don't belong in the world. Our whole lives are going to tell us that. You don't fit here. Things aren't going right. You're falling apart. You need to put on a false face for the people who are around you and so on. Our lives will tell us that we don't belong, but we do belong to him. Our lives will give us opportunities to raise our feet against our enemies, to conquer, to win, sometimes to rule. But the one to whom we belong has shown us how to wash the feet of those who raise them against us. That is... Our lives will point us one way because we're living in this world. But the God we follow will point us the other. And the other way, the way God leads us and directs us, that's the way of mercy. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Cream. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not.
and come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.